from Minnesota Public Radio and National Public Radio, this is an American Radio Works special report, 25 years from Vietnam. I'm Bill Busenberg. A quarter century after the Vietnam War ended, Americans are still debating what it meant. This hour, we explore myths about Vietnam veterans. And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win. You know, you don't go through three or four years of military discipline and then come out and say, boy, I'm going to go rob a bank or shoot my mother. We hear the raw sounds of the war as experienced by a 19-year-old Marine. Now, there's all kinds of garbage going on. We don't know whether it's outgoing or incoming. No words passed down like that. Sounds of the enchanted forest. And we take a fresh look at the Vietnam anti-war movement. The kids are now... We expressed the division of the nation in a form that was out there socially and in everybody's face. This hour, 25 years from Vietnam. First, the news. This is a special report from American Radio Works, 25 years from Vietnam. I'm Bill Busenberg. The Vietnam War ended on April 30th, 1975, when Saigon fell to the North Vietnamese. This hour, an American perspective on the war's legacy. The Vietnam veteran is perhaps the most mythologized figure to emerge from the war. Some three million men and women served in Vietnam. Most are in their 50s now. In our first segment, The Movie in Our Heads, American Radio Works correspondent John Bewin looks at some of the competing stories told by and about Vietnam vets. The Vietnam War and the deep divide over its meaning is seemingly hardwired into the soul and psyche of America. Duluth, Minnesota is a long way from Saigon, or for that matter, from the Pentagon or Berkeley. But Vietnam lives here, too. And so when I walk in here, this is like holy ground, you know, to us. I mean, it means something. That's how Durbin Keeney feels about Duluth Vietnam War Memorial. It was dedicated in 1992. It's a concrete half-dome with its back to Lake Superior. Across from it, as though taking shelter in a bunker, is a black granite wall, reminiscent of the much larger one in Washington, D.C. The wall has 136 names on it, uh, five POWs in the area from the seven counties surrounding this area. So we're real proud of, of what we put together here to provide healing for the families, for the community. I've come down here in the middle of the night and found guys playing guitars and singing to the wall. Durbin Keeney is 51, a big man with red hair and a graying beard. He served in Vietnam in 1970 and 71 as an Air Force security officer. On this cool spring day, he wears a black jacket and a cap with a visor. Both declare him a Vietnam veteran. So do Durbin's belt buckle and his license plate. He says his fellow Vietnam vets are his life now. They are his vocation. Morning. In a basement office, Keeney runs a small nonprofit group that helps homeless veterans find housing, treatment, and other help. Right, but you're working through this, okay? You're working through that. That's Earl Nett, a counselor in the office, on the phone with a troubled vet. You're trying to get somebody in, in the treatment. You're, you're letting go of the past, so if you're going to uh, rise above all those other issues, the vet on the other end of the line may need to let go of the past, but Durbin Keeney says he couldn't do it. In the 1970s and 80s, he worked in insurance and other business ventures, trying to forget the war. Everything changed a few years ago, he says, when he finally faced his own Vietnam memories. There are times that I guarded the Blackbird, 
and the blackbird would take off after the freedom birds at night. Freedom birds took troops home. The blackbird was where the soldiers who were killed were taken out. And the hardest thing that I've always dealt with, excuse me, is what we call survivor's guilt. I made it and somebody else didn't. I know now why. I, I believe I believe very firmly that those rhymes are reasons why some of us survived and some of us didn't, some of us from different states in our survival, because that's allowed me to do what I'm doing today. I'm Tom Morgan. I teach uh, Russian language, Russian literature, Russian history, uh, and uh, peace studies uh, here at the College of St. Scholastica in Duluth. At 55, and Tom Morgan looks the part of the college professor, tweed jacket and round wire rim glasses. He grew up in Duluth. He graduated from the local University of Minnesota campus before enlisting in the Navy and going to Vietnam in 1968. The walls of Morgan's small office are covered with photos, posters, and flyers, almost all of them having to do with Russia, Morgan's academic field. If there is any reference to your background as a Vietnam veteran in the office, uh, I'm not seeing it. Well, neither am I. <laughs> it was definitely a, a, an important and a defining moment in my life, and it has shaped me. But I continue to grow and expand and look forward. In fact, though, Morgan does carry Vietnam with him. In midlife, he's become a peace activist of sorts. First of all, I mean, I saw people get blown apart, you know, and that would get anybody to, to begin to question, you know, the, the value of any war. A couple of years ago, Morgan worked to defeat a plan to park a World War II-era battleship in the Duluth port as a tourist attraction, a project Durbin Keeney actively supported. Morgan objected that the ship would glorify war. He says his anti-war convictions grew straight out of Vietnam. I didn't know what to think about this war. But I was, you know, fairly patriotic and still am. I mean, I, this country is a pretty wonderful country. Because I couldn't make up my mind or didn't really have a clear understanding, I just went along with it. Um, because we're all against communism, aren't we? It took a while to sort of, for me to understand the futility and the, the hopelessness of that situation. Vietnam, 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 oh no. Vietnam, Vietnam, I didn't want to go. Morgan and Keeney are just two veterans with two very different ways of fitting Vietnam into their lives. Unlike the rest of us who struggle over the meaning of that war, veterans have the added experience or burden of watching politicians, the news media, and the makers of popular culture tell their story. One recurring image is that of the violently unbalanced Vietnam vet. The movies have churned out many such characters, like Robert De Niro's Taxi Driver. Listen, you fuckers. You screwheads, here's a man who would not take it anymore. A man who stood up against the scum, the cunts, the dogs. The of course, some Vietnam veterans are mentally ill. Some are chemically addicted and homeless. But veteran B.G. Burkett, author of a book on vets called Stolen Valor, says he looked hard at government statistics. He thinks most people will be surprised by what he discovered about Vietnam vets. We had the lowest unemployment rate of any major category, had the highest per capita income, had the highest educational rate. 
We had one of the lowest criminality rates of any group in America. You know, you don't go through three or four years of military discipline and then come out and say, boy, I'm going to go rob a bank or shoot my mother. Another stock Hollywood character is the gung-ho Vietnam soldier turned veteran with a grudge. You think Rambo was the only guy who had a tough time in Vietnam? He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. You're goddamn lucky he didn't kill all of you. The grudge is usually directed toward the anti-war movement and a government that didn't wage an all-out attack. And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win. So the loss of the war is attributed to something that happened here on the home front. Jerry Lemke is a Vietnam veteran and a sociologist at Holy Cross College. We were sold out by liberals in Congress who wouldn't fund the war and who wouldn't approve the military strategy that we needed to win the war. And we were, we were stabbed in the back by the anti-war movement in the streets that demoralized our soldiers in Vietnam and gave aid and comfort to the enemy that we were fighting against. Lemke says that's the dominant opinion expressed by Vietnam vets in the movies, but it's not Lemke's view. He says most vets he knows don't feel that way either, nor did most of the GIs he knew in Vietnam. He served as an army chaplain's assistant in 1969. The unit that I was assigned to at that time, I would say most of the men there uh, couldn't wait to get home to join the anti-war movement. Uh, the prevailing opinion was that the people at home who are protesting the war are right, they're on the right side of this issue, and, and we're on the wrong side. B.G. Burkett had a very different experience. He says the men in his infantry unit were gung-ho, but then he did his tour in 1968. The morale did not really start to decline until probably mid-69, and then of course by 70, 71, it got terrible, because by that time, uh, with the peace talks had started, and Nixon's talking, uh, peace with honor. And so if you're over there, you know you're not there to win a war. And the only thing that's going to happen to you the longer you stay there is you're going to get killed or wounded. There are no firm statistics on how many Vietnam GIs actively opposed their own war. Most experts say it was far short of a majority. But in the early 1970s, military leaders themselves described a crisis among Vietnam soldiers, saying many were dispirited and nearly mutinous. I'm sitting in a bunker with about a dozen grunts of the 1st Cav Division. Journalist Richard Boyle made this recording at a military base in South Vietnam in October 1971. Last night, they were ordered to go into a night combat assault. Several of the men refused to go, and none of the 15 on the patrol wanted to go. Well, I the soldiers told Boyle they were objecting not only to what they saw as a suicidal mission, but to the war effort itself. They said their commanding officer wouldn't let them wear T-shirts with peace symbols. He calls us hypocrites because we wear peace signs. Yeah. Like if we, we wanted to come over here yeah. and fight. I always did believe in protecting my own country if it came, if it came, yeah, it came down to that. But see, I'm over here fighting a war for a cause that means nothing to me. Yeah. Historians say so-called combat refusals became increasingly common in Vietnam after 1969. GIs also expressed their opposition to the war in underground newspapers and coffeehouse rap sessions. Some wore black armbands in the field. Some went further, says historian Terry Anderson of Texas A&M. 
During the years of 1969 down to 1973, we have the rise of fragging. That is, shooting or hand grenading your NCO or your officer who orders you out into the field. It's my own troops I have to watch out for, he said. I sleep with a pistol right under my head. The U.S. Army itself does not know exactly how many NCOs and officers were murdered. But they know at least 600 were murdered, and then they have another 1,400 that died mysteriously. Consequently, by the early 1970, the Army's at war, not with the enemy, but with itself. Of course, the vast majority of Vietnam GIs carried out their orders and came home. A large crowd gathers at Kelly Air Force Base in San Antonio to give a very special welcome home to some very special people. At the end of 1966, a Universal Studios newsreel described the return of wounded Vietnam soldiers. President Lyndon Johnson and his wife Lady Bird greeted the men. The president expresses the gratitude of a grateful nation. By the end of the war, there was not much sunny talk of a grateful nation. The country had lost its first war. Americans were profoundly divided over the conflict and held complicated feelings about its veterans. Sociologist Jerry Lemke says from the late 1970s on, politicians and the media dwelled increasingly on returning vets. What popular culture did was rewrite the history, rewrite the story of the Vietnam War in many ways as being a story about veterans coming home from the war. In other words, he says the nation's public soul-searching on Vietnam turned to questions about post-traumatic stress disorder, the lack of welcome home parades, and POW MIAs. Lemke and some others who've thought about Vietnam for decades now would rather talk about other, perhaps more troubling questions. Why did we send those men and women to Vietnam in the first place? What did we ask them to do on our behalf? Historian Marilyn Young of New York University says Americans have a big stake in not thinking too hard about those questions. And insisting that the United States uh, founded in freedom, pursuing freedom and liberty for all throughout its history, that that story of America is salvaged. And it's a good deal to give up. It's a lot to give up to reckon with the actual history of any country and how, what it's done in the world and what any government has done abroad and to its own people. And I think people don't want to give up the simple story because it's, it's a nicer story. And it always has a happy ending. There's no sign of consensus among Vietnam vets about the meaning of their war. As one veteran in Duluth, Minnesota says, the conversation is still continuing. This is John Bewin. Coming up, a portrait of the war based on recordings made by a 19-year-old Marine. I'm Bill Buesenberg. You're listening to 25 Years from Vietnam, a special report from American Radio Works and NPR, National Public Radio. You're listening to a special report from American Radio Works, 25 Years from Vietnam. I'm Bill Buesenberg. Michael Baranowski was a 19-year-old Marine when he landed in Vietnam in 1966. 
he brought a reel-to-reel tape recorder with him and used it to record audio letters to his family back in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Baranowski was killed in 1967. His friend and fellow platoon member, Tim Duffy, found those tapes a few years ago. Our next segment was produced by Christina Egloff with Jay Allison. The Vietnam Tapes of Lance Corporal Michael A. Baranowski. Every death is a tragedy, and I don't buy into the any given death was more tragic than the others, okay? But in, in this, of all the 58,000 tragedies, this is one that's very close to me. I don't know where to begin. There's so much to tell you about. We've been real lucky with the rain so far. It's rained only about four of the days we've been here. And the rest of the time we've been busy every hour, every minute, with setting in and digging in, preparing fields of fire, clearing fields of fire, patrolling, ambushing, standing 50% security at night, stringing up barbed wire, trip flares, and other goodies. The terrain is majestic. It's like something out of Heidi. The view is magnificent. And just as sinister as it is magnificent. Sinister because this is the perfect terrain, the perfect country for mortar attacks. And the VC have uh, made use of it. My name is Tim Duffy. Uh, at the time I was in Vietnam, I was Corporal, Corporal Tim Duffy, United States Marine Corps, 2199108. Mike at the time uh, was uh, Lance Corporal uh, when we were together in uh, October and November of 1966. There's another man you'll get to know through the tapes here if uh, I'm able to hang on to the recorder. Mr. Tim Duffy. I got to know Mike back in Okinawa. He introduced himself one night. We, we met in Okinawa in uh, uh, September of 1966. Then we took the USS Iwo Jima from Okinawa down to Vietnam. Then we moved up to what was called Payable Hill, which was located between the rock pile and the Razorback, approximately four to 5,000 yards south of the demilitarized zone in Quang Tri Province. I have the recorder here, and I'm going to try to keep it elevated off the ground and away from everything here. I'm going to try to keep it up in the air because everything I touch here eats through my skin or bites me or <laughs> rots something. Wrong, <laughs> this, is, this is something else. The grass will cut you. The mud will rot your uh, skin. This is something else. We're in my bunker and what we would do was during the day you had some free time if you were not on patrol or on operation. So if Mike happened to have his free time while I'm on hole watch he would come down with his tape recorder and we would tape while I'm, you know, on hole watch. This is the 35-watt voice of station MOXE, broadcasting to you from the swamps, jungles, boondocks, and infected salad of Fort McCourt, home of the fighting first platoon of Hungry Eye. I remember taping that comedy session, and we did it in my fighting hole, and I can see him sitting there doing that, that tape. This portion of our programming is brought to you by 20 Round Burst, the candy bar voted best tax waste of the war. Mike had made me go out and buy a harmonica, and he taught, he gave me one lesson, how to hold my tongue and play one note at a time. 
but he knew he wanted background music for all this crazy crap. So he, you know, made me learn how to, quote, play the harmonica. And that's me in the background with the Marine Corps hymn. Don't be one of those unfortunates who suffer tragically from that melody sometimes referred to as Viet Cong yellow striped fever. Stoop, stoop, stupefy your friends and maim your enemies. Exercise your God-given right to kill or maim at a distance. It's a great feeling to know that you can wipe out your entire neighborhood. Yes, be the first kid on your block to rule the world. See your Marine Corps recruiter today. I, I really think Mike and I were just such kindred spirits, you know. Uh, ironically, I don't ever remember us sitting around talking about the potential that one of us would die. You know, we, we just were not sitting there waiting to die. I just don't know what to say. I'm a total loss for words here. I'm looking out of a window now, a hole in the sandbag wall in the back of the hooch, looking out toward the east, out toward home. Long way from home. Actually, I guess home is closer straight down. It'll be great to hear your voices again. I can't wait to get a tape. Uh, make sure that, that when you send a tape, it's on a two-inch... Just sitting here listening to your tapes while we had breakfast. Terry, Mom, Cookie, and myself came up to Scranton. Sandy worked all day yesterday. Hi, Murray. Trying to straighten up, get ready for Thanksgiving. And I'm starting to get Daddy's lunch or dinner ready. He eats his dinner about 12 o'clock. So when I prepare his, I prepare for the whole family. Uh, just yesterday, Mom took me to see Mary Poppins, and that was a really good movie. I enjoyed it very much. So take care of yourself and don't do anything I wouldn't do, as everybody in school says. Bye, Terry. Hi, Mike. It's Cookie. So I came in to say a few words of hello few words. to brighten your day. So I'll see you, Mike. And I appreciate you sending the money home, Mike, but I can't. I just doesn't seem right for me to spend your money, so I opened an account, and I'm putting the money that you sent home to me into the bank for you when you get home. I wish that you could be home for Christmas. That'd be the greatest thing in the world. Everybody's anxious to get home, get back to their families and their girls. But while we're over here, we're not wasting away thinking about it. We're glad and proud. Uh, this is where I belong, I think. More, more so than any place else. These tapes, I assumed these tapes were long gone. I never even considered the possibility they'd still be around. Then I met Cookie in 97. And I, <laughs> I couldn't believe that she had those tapes. I personally think that what he did with the tape recorder was practice. I think it would have been his portfolio when he came home. He was going in radio when he came home, and he was just going to take that around and play it and say, see, this is what I can do. The uh, rest of the tape here on this side are sounds as I recorded them when they called 100% alert, which is pretty rare. 
the, the attack was officially, I guess, referred to as a probe. So what the NVA were doing is they were looking for a weakness. And that whole battle was taking place 30 yards from Mike and I. Now the word's been passed to fix bayonets. Sarge just came running by and said, let me go get my bayonets. I can get hit on this. This started to be a fun tape. I don't know. It's getting too much like a 12-cent combat comic book now. It's always fun when you kill people. Yeah. Hey, Carter. How many of you over there? Three of you? Three of you in that hole? Okay. Now, there's all kinds of garbage going on. We don't know whether it's outgoing or incoming. No words passed down like that. The illumination is being kept up, and every once in a while a 60-millimeter mortar mission is called out to our left front whole mountain out there. In front of us looks like a nine-acre Christmas tree. Fire. Little Peter. High explosive. Now you can hear the illumination being kept up there. were heat rounds, high explosive. It's dark now. We're waiting for the illumination to go off. <laughs> That's a hairy thing. Hairy feeling. Sitting there in the dark with all that stuff going on. Sounds of the Enchanted Forest. Look out, Jesus! <laughs> That's too close. Airstrike. Wipe napalm all over that place. Look at that. generation I don't see any any indication of fear in his voice we didn't know but what we were going to have to grab our rifles and m14 or and, and grenades and have at it because if they'd have broken through that point then we were going to be in an all-out hand-to-hand combat and that very potential there was no way I could have stood there and did what he did now it's dark quiet Everything's been quiet for about 15 minutes now. I was just crouching down in the hole there, talking to a hand grenade. I thought it was the microphone. I realized what I was doing. And the rain's just on time. Now it'll rain the rest of the night. My memories of how Mike died are, he was walking point, and I was in, in a squad, I was carrying a radio, and I was probably five or six people back. And we were moving alongside of a Vietnamese village, and the village was deserted. And we, I heard one shot, which we knew was not an M14. We knew it wasn't one of ours. And then two more shots, and basically that was the end of it, and somebody shouted Mike was down. 
and I ran up through the fence row, and I saw Mike laying off to the side on the ground. I moved up beside him, and in my memory, he was looking at me, and so I had to run off, and we dealt with the, with the firefight. And uh, then they had to set up perimeter security to bring in the medevac helicopters. And so thinking that Mike has been wounded, I'm sitting under the tree, and I, I'm kind of smiling to myself. Good, he's going home now. And uh, I, I thought he had gotten the million-dollar wound. And I began to kind of, in my imagination, I could see myself driving across the Interstate 70, driving into Norristown. I pictured a house like I think he would live in. And I pictured myself walking up the sidewalk, and Mike sees me, and he comes running out the door in a big hug, and welcome home, and let's go to New York City. That was our dream. Then the helicopters land. I look up, and I see four people, one on each ankle and wrist, Literally, they've, they've lifted him up like a sack of potatoes. They're running across the field. His head was hanging back, bouncing across the, the dirt. And I started to stand up and say, that's no way to treat a wounded man. And boom. And I knew he wasn't wounded. I knew he was dead. If you were to take me back to the beginning of it and say, okay, now here's how it's going to end. Are you sure you want to do this? I think I'd still have to say, yeah, I want to do it again. And it's not the war, it's not the cause, it's not Vietnam, it's just the, the, the kind of, of love that you get in such a short, intense period of time. I think I can go to his grave now. I've never done it. Uh, and uh, take a copy of the tape and just kind of dig a little hole there and maybe we'll put one of the, a copy of the, of the broadcast there for him. I don't know. But I think it's, I'm going to have to go tell him that, that it worked, that he's been on the radio. Yeah, he made it. <laughs> well, uh, that's my hooch, but what I usually do is stumble around. And if I can find my way through the darkness, I come down here and talk to one of the men that's standing, whole watch here on the hill. <coughs> Who's here? Oh, how you doing, Nine? This is uh, one of my Arvin friends down here. His name is Nine. He's sitting here with his eyes half closed. The poor guy's been on watch at him. How you doing, Nine? Fine. Yeah, fine. You look like you're about to fall over. He's just sitting here on the sandbags, right up on top. He doesn't care who's out there. <laughs> Too tired to care about anything. Got they muga? Muga? No. Got they muga means uh, maybe rain, and he doesn't think so. I don't think so either. There are billion stars visible tonight. Beautiful. Almost every night that's clear, and now more and more nights aren't clear because the monsoon is fast coming. But those nights that are clear. Almost every star that's 
visible with a human eye, I guess, is visible. Uh, it's a beautiful sight. Milky Way and all the constellations. Of course, they're a little bit different now that we're on the other side of the planet and looking at them from some weird cockeyed angle. I don't know. Hey, I've got some news for you. I made meritorious Lance Corporal today. How about that? Proud of me? Wow. You see that shooting star in there? See that? It was a big shooting star just now. And uh, that was uh, mortars. This is so much easier than writing. I can do it in the dark, of course, which is nice, except that this damn red blinker here is liable to get me zapped. So I've got my hand over it. I'm not quite as awake as I should be when I try to tape. But I just wanted to get this one off to you while I can, so that you'll have it and uh, know that I'm thinking about you. I think about all of you and miss you so much every day. You just don't have any idea, Mom and Dad, Cookie, Sandy and Terry, how good it was to hear your voices again. It was really wonderful. That's all I can say. What else can I say? It was really great to hear you all again. The Vietnam Tapes of Lance Corporal Michael A. Baranowski was produced by Christina Igloff with Jay Allison as part of the series Lost and Found Sound. Still to come, a fresh look at the Vietnam anti-war movement. This is 25 Years from Vietnam, a special report from American Radio Works and NPR, National Public Radio. For more on the Vietnam War, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll find photographs of some of the people in this report and an account by a veteran and poet not included in this radio special. You'll also find reports by Deborah George and Daniel Zwerdling on the war's legacy in Vietnam. All that plus the complete audio of this news special at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Lost and Found Sound is produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, and Jay Allison, in collaboration with NPR with funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Major funding for Revisiting Vietnam is provided by the Stanley Foundation, and major funding for American Radio Works is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Florence and John Schumann Foundation, with additional support from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. American Radio Works is the National Documentary Unit of Minnesota Public Radio, in cooperation with NPR, National Public Radio. I'm Bill Busenberg. This is a special report from American Radio Works, 25 years from Vietnam. By the mid-1960s, as the war in Vietnam escalated, so did tensions in the United States. In our final segment, journalist Sandy Tolan explores the Vietnam anti-war movement and its impact on America. Ladies and gentlemen, country Joe McDonald. 
Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. The protesters and the proponents of U.S. involvement in Vietnam have had three decades to reflect on what they were fighting for. For the children born during that time and after, the war and the war at home over Vietnam is as distant as World War II was for their parents. When I first got here to Berkeley, I was like, oh, this is where it all happened, this is so cool. Four students sit on a cement cube at the University of California campus, a cradle of the anti-war movement, as I wait here for a veteran of the movement, these students from the School of Public Health try to imagine what the campus was like before they were born. The first images that come to my mind are just rallies, people standing on podiums and big posters saying, you know, out of Vietnam and, and flashing images of Kennedy and Nixon and, and just young boys going away. Like, and I'm, these are things that I've seen on movies. This is what I've grown up hearing Forrest about Gump. the Vietnam. Yeah, Forrest Gump, movies, just, I mean, my parents. And I think our generation doesn't even know what war is anymore. We have no conception of what it is for just random people to be killed. I hear a voice behind me and turn around. It's the guy I've been waiting for. You all, you all are students here? It's so striking. Deep lines carve into Michael Rossman's face. The students look suddenly shiny, faces smooth, eyes clear. They consider this man with the gray ponytail. We divided the nation. We expressed the division of the nation in a form that was out there socially and in everybody's face. Later, in an off-campus coffee house, Michael and I go over some of the history. In 1964, many students returned from Mississippi summer and the Civil Rights Movement. The next year in Berkeley, Vietnam Day and campus-wide teach-ins kicked off years of protests. By 1967, frustration and rage in an escalating war brought more radical protest. Activists tried to shut down the draft process at the Oakland Induction Center. Violent conflict filled the streets and the television screens. It wasn't polite protests. Thousands of kids were getting beat and gassed in the streets. And the numbers kept increasing, and then they started shooting kids dead. From the perspective of those who wanted to persecute the war successfully, it fatally divided America's will. The official history of the anti-war movement reads something like this. The protests in the street helped slow the war, end the war, end the government's resolve to continue fighting. Yes, I even killed my brothers and so many others, but I ain't a marching anymore. But was it really that effective? Anti-war protesters had a, had a higher negative public favor uh, quotient, according to all the polls, than the John Birch Society and the Ku Klux Klan. Anti-war protesters as a group was the, was the most hated group in American society. Adam Garfinkel is author of a book examining what he calls the myths of the anti-war movement. Even people who were concerned about the wisdom of the war were not prepared to oppose it because of the company that they would be seen to be keeping. People flying the Viet Cong flag, people using obscenity and vulgarity, people doing things that were blatantly anti-patriotic. 
Still, by 1968, the protests appeared to be making an impact. In March, in the wake of a strong showing by anti-war presidential candidate Eugene McCarthy in New Hampshire, President Lyndon Johnson stunned the nation. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Yet if anti-war protesters took the credit for toppling LBJ, they would soon be assigned blame for what followed. Chicago, August 1968. It had already been perhaps the most divisive year in America since the Civil War. In January, the North Vietnamese Tet Offensive had shattered American illusions about a quick end to the war. Two months later, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. Two months after that, Bobby Kennedy was shot down after winning the California Democratic primary. And then at summer's end came the Democratic Convention. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am proud to present to this convention the name of Hubert Horatio Humphrey as nominee for the President of the United States. Humphrey! Humphrey the Statue The truck is spraying a, a gas. The kids are now moving back into the street. They're fighting and pushing. The indelible image from Chicago was not Hubert Humphrey accepting the Democratic nomination, nor the efforts to insert an anti-war plank into the party platform. It was the picture of enraged young people coming up against the defenders of law and order. As some youths taunted the police, the cops waded into the crowds, clubbing some demonstrators into unconsciousness. A fact-finding commission called it a police riot. Yet soon, bumper stickers began to appear. We support Mayor Daley and the Chicago police. The backlash was in full swing. No doubt the precipitation of the confrontation in Chicago in August 68 had very bad political consequences. Todd Gitlin, former leader of Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, and now a sociology professor at New York University, says the backlash helped elect Richard Nixon. Gitlin believes Hubert Humphrey as president would have been under far more pressure within his party to end American involvement quickly. Among those who bear the blame for that turn of events for the 68 default are those militants in the anti-war movement who didn't vote uh, for Humphrey. I don't exempt myself. Most people I know, including myself, didn't vote for president that year. And, uh, and that was a big mistake. So tonight, to you, the great silent majority, I ask for your support. During his campaign, Richard Nixon said he had a plan to end the war. He wasn't specific. A year after his election, he told America the negotiations in Paris were moving forward. He called for unity. Because let us understand, North Vietnam cannot defeat or humiliate the United States. Only Americans can do that. Nixon's strategy was to divide domestic dissent from the great political middle. For a time, the message played well. Gloucester, Massachusetts, on the seacoast north of Boston. Here, like in many American communities, the anti-war movement was made up of middle-class parents who had grown increasingly alarmed at their country's behavior. Yet they were dogged by the radical images of the national movement. We were constantly battling those kinds of images here. 
Ellen Gabin has been an activist for 35 years, marching in Selma in 1965, joining an American citizens delegation to Cuba last year, and in the 60s, typing newsletters and organizing forums against the war. But the specter of groups like the Weather Underground, the bombings and the violence, made her work more difficult. Locally, people talked about it and said, we told you so, look at that, look at those crazies, and began putting us in the same camp. And so not only were we a part of the, quote, drug camp, the flower children camp, now we were part of the, the bombings and the hysteria that was happening. Those things, they made people afraid to be part of the movement. Afraid also because people knew the government was watching. This was at the height of an extensive U.S. domestic spying campaign when the FBI, the CIA, the Army, and the National Security Agency infiltrated and kept watch over a vast range of anti-war groups and individuals, from the Yippies and the Weathermen to Martin Luther King to the concerned mothers of Calumet High School. In Chicago alone, of the several thousand demonstrators at the convention, an estimated 500 of them were government agents, informants, and provocateurs. We were much closer to the McCarthy era than anybody is now. Joe McCarthy, even though we were doing perfectly legal things with our Constitution said we could do, but yet there was that element of fear that they could come for us at any time. But in the conservative core of the town, among the sons and daughters of the fishermen, the call for honor and duty was answered. I was in high school in the 60s, and, and we, we knew that our neighborhood friends, once graduating from Gloucester High School, were going to Vietnam. Lucia Amaro was born and raised in Gloucester. At Good Harbor Beach, we sit on a dune on a cold, windy April day close friends, friends that you grew up with, next-door neighbors. It just seemed as though the neighborhoods were clearing out of all these young guys that uh, we played with, we played basketball with, we played kick the can in the middle of Granite Street with. Eleven Gloucester families lost men in Vietnam. Lucia knew ten of them. Sammy Piscatello lived two doors down. And Frank D'Amico and her best friend, Maddie Amaral. He went into the Army. And um, he didn't come back. As 1968 came and the protests built, Lucia watched and stayed away. I was never a supporter of the war, and I never objected to the war. My stand was to support my brother, to support my cousin. And uh, we were brought up at home doing dishes in the kitchen, singing Kate Smith, God Bless America, flag-waving. My mother would have never thought to keep her son home from Vietnam. She had friends who demonstrated, friends who escaped the draft by going to Canada. But Lucia, who now works with veterans for the city of Gloucester, also recalls how her brother Anthony and her cousin Ricky were spurned by some people when they came home from Vietnam. They were young guys and they were family and I love them and, and how could they be doing this to them? But if the excesses of the anti-war movement turned so many people off, so did the response. In May 1970, blood spilled on a college campus in Middle America. Uh, people started throwing rocks, and all of a sudden they started kneeling. We knew they were going to shoot, so we started running. Somebody call for another ambulance! Get out of here! There's people dying down here! Get out of here! 
Four students were shot dead by National Guardsmen at Kent State in Ohio. This was, for many, the ultimate sign of the war at home. Why they had a lot of ammunition, I don't know. Colonel Walter B. Russell and his wife Nancy had long been part of the silent majority. But sitting poolside on a visit with the grandkids in Phoenix, they recall their anguish, watching the country come apart. When those four kids got killed, it was absolutely out of line and inexcusable, and it, it really tore my heart out. In 1965, Colonel Russell was shot in the head in Vietnam while on a helicopter mission. He lost part of his brain and the use of the left side of his body and spent years in rehab with Mrs. Russell and the kids at his side. Then he won a seat in the Georgia House. As national disillusionment deepened and the release of the Pentagon Papers revealed official lies the government had long been telling about Vietnam, the colonel introduced a resolution urging the U.S. to get out of Vietnam. Walt Russell, West Point grad, decorated veteran of Korea and Vietnam, and a man who had little time for protesters, was fed up. Well, my feeling was that if the internal fight about Vietnam was doing a lot of damage to the country. I mean, of course, not having decision-making power. What I could do about it was to get this little resolution through. And it said we should either go ahead and win it or withdraw, you know. Nancy Russell kept her silence. She resented the kids who avoided service, hated Jane Fonda for going to Hanoi. But she and Colonel Russell, raised in the time of the good war in Europe, came to believe that Vietnam was not the kind of war their country should fight. Like so many other Americans, Walt and Nancy Russell grew exhausted with the Vietnam War. I was against the Vietnam War from the get-go. Of course, when Walt got shot in the head, that didn't make me feel any better about that war. I felt my feelings, you know, somebody's got to get this war over pretty fast. You know, 58,000 deaths is a lot for us. And uh, the media, of course, had never gotten into a war like this one, like they did in Vietnam. So they had the little naked girl coming down the road, you know, on fire, so, you know. And the other horrible pictures, but all that was part of it. We do, that, that is not the way Americans all think of themselves as doing that. But, you know, we did it. We are going to win. I'm Sandy Tolan for NPR News and American Radio Works. And we don't let people divide our nation in a time of national peril. The hour is here. In the face of the people who know they're going to win, there's a strength that's greater than the power of the wind. And you can stand around when the ice is growing thin. For these are the days of decision. This has been a special report from American Radio Works and NPR, 25 years from Vietnam. It was produced and edited by Deborah George, associate producer Stephanie Curtis, mixing by Craig Thorson and Maggie Villiger, production help from Art Silverman, Bill Deputy, and Darcy Bacon of NPR, interns Dan Gorenstein, Nicole Zoiner, and Carlos Bracino. The managing editor of American Radio Works is Stephen Smith, project manager Nancy Fushin, I'm Bill Busenberg. Major funding for Revisiting Vietnam is provided by the Stanley Foundation. Major funding for American Radio Works is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Florence and John Schumann Foundation, with additional support from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. For more on our two-part series on Vietnam, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. 
American Radio Works is the National Documentary Unit of Minnesota Public Radio in cooperation with NPR, National Public Radio.